0: Welcome to Radio Mad. This is a true account of events which took place in the second half of the 1970s in Transkei, a so-called banana republic in southern Africa, during South Africa's monstrous and oppressive apartheid regime. A small team of people, recruited in London, joined up with a bunch of ambitious club DJs from Cape Town led and mentored by two men who ran nightclub discos, and a third a Cape Town academic. In London, a team was recruited and chosen by a radio guru, a kind of expert at programming, training, and above all, motivating. Within a year, the reality of this dream turned from euphoric excitement and endless partying and drinking to near-despair, depression and disappointment. However, the actual effect this project had on the vast Republic of South Africa not only contributed to the end of apartheid, but radically changed the way popular and rock music stations operated within the vast continent. The radio station was called Capital Radio 604. Its aim to play the best, coolest and newest music available globally and combine it with the truest, most accurate newscasts possible. It's believed that Nelson Mandela, imprisoned at the time on Robben Island off the coast of Cape Town, would tune to Capitol Radio to find out how his rebel freedom fighters were progressing in the war against apartheid and the white stranglehold on the freedom and rights of the black South Africans. Mandela turned into the newscast, which was not available anywhere else. In a very few cases, people's names have been altered at the request of the actual people involved in this exciting, daring, sometimes tragic, but mostly fun period of their lives. My name's Steve Crozier, I'll be narrating this story over the coming weeks. It is factually accurate as only my memory allows, but I've been assisted by some of the actual staffers and journalists who worked at Capital in those days. I was one of the original recruits from London in 1979 and this is my account of events plus some background as to how and why I went there and what it was like to work in the music radio business when the Rolling Stones and the Beatles jostled with Diana Ross, Donna Summer and the Bee Gees. We're going to start at the end and the tragic death of Capitol's guru visionary John Moody a man who was larger than life and whose ambitions were even larger than his lust for living. This part is largely dramatized, since obviously John was the only person present. Chapter One John Moody had been drinking hard the previous night, a scrappy bellicose night which had now turned into morning. Scrappy because, as usual, John was suggesting to his long-time business buddy that he he would have been a better drug smuggler and he was able to hold his drink better and threw in a, you never had to spend any time in an Indian prison, and similar brags and boasts. There was probably more said, but John couldn't remember. His recall cutoff was usually about 1 a.m. As the warm early sun rose over Cape Town, John was oblivious of its rays sparkling over the ocean. His dry, bloodshot eyes couldn't take in the beauty of the African morning. He'd seen it so often and used to appreciate it when he lived further north, in Port St John's, on the wild coast of Transkei, further up the African coast. Those were better days filled with laughter, optimism, lots of music and handgun practice on its beach on a Sunday. John was an excellent shot with his favourite piece, a Colt 45 with carved bone handgrips. But this was to be his last morning, he had decided. As he walked towards his car, amazingly parked perfectly in the damp and dark basement parking lot of his building, John didn't notice the African security guard slumped and asleep in the corner. John used to bid him good morning. Not today, John's last day it was a good thing the guard was asleep he wouldn't witness John removing the length of hose pipe from the trunk of the old model sedan with its scuffed wheel rims chipped wheel arches and dirty windows John opened the driver's door walked to the rear of the car inserted a footer pipe into the exhaust, and poked the other end through the car window, which was still open from the previous evening's drive from his local bar, the Flamingo, whose horrible blue neon sign made that sporadic buzzing noise just like in a Tarantino movie. From somewhere in his coat pocket, he pulled out a fifth bottle of wild turkey, which had already been cracked open, for his early morning swig, you know, the one which would stop his dry heaving, nausea and hand tremors. Still shaking, he raised the bottle to his mouth where it hit his discoloured front teeth, which had received zero maintenance over the past several years. The same was true with his wrecked body, battered through decades of hard drinking and drug abuse, mainly painkillers. As he lowered his frame into the driver's seat, his leg somehow got caught under the other, and his obese, unexercised, bloated frame slumped diagonally into the torn and worn pleather seat cover. He smelled of yesterday's shirt and socks. The quack called it acid aldehyde, whatever that smelled like. So far, so good. Now, where are the car keys? 9,000 miles away, John's former contractor and sometime friend and drinking buddy, Steve, eased himself into a very different chair. This chair he'd earned for himself in a damp London church basement meeting room of Alcoholics Anonymous. The chair had been waiting for Steve since his twenties. Very occasionally, he'd look back at the events, from 1978 onwards, which had caused these two mavericks to meet. Often, he'd stare into the distance and wonder just what had happened to the the gangbuster pirate entrepreneur who wanted to do everything, build everything, and buy everything. Steve and John hadn't spoken for many years. There'd been a dispute over unpaid debts, accusations of mutual professional inability, and general name-calling. Like a couple of seven-year-olds, they were no longer on speaking terms. Besides, Steve had lost track of John's whereabouts a long time ago, but still had a kind of soft spot for the old whiskey-swilling rogue. Steve always remembers the gently seasoned and expensive brown cowboy boots John used to wear. It was kind of his trademark footwear. Steve had to get over his own resentment of the debt. It was part of his new life blueprint so readily taught and shared by his AA brothers and sisters. Steve had to keep his side of the street swept clean. Somehow AA in London's Chelsea felt sort of okay and legit After all, there were artists, writers, famous musicians and well-known photographers in attendance, plus a crew of girls of all ages and professions, some of which were very old professions. Leather miniskirts were popular then, and underwear was optional, depending on which famous musician or photographer was to lead that evening's Chelsea meeting. This community felt safe, safe and fun, and made Steve feel at home, unlike the taut, backstabbing and insecure world of broadcast media from which he came. Here, at least, the members had one defect in common. The rest of the members' traits Steve could appear to emulate or pretend to align with, which was all part of the chameleon skill of the true alcoholic. Perfecting this skill was important, and had helped Steve adopt a faux personality at his boarding school from the age of eight, through high school and college, and then as a mediocre disc jockey on a small handful of radio stations. His ear for music was very good, however, and his ability to pick hit records and select dance music when he was a discotheque DJ was excellent. And this is how he'd made a considerable income until he encountered the low pay-for-fame economic model of early commercial radio in Britain, starting when Steve was a 3000 British pound-a-year radio presenter on the outskirts of London back in the mid-seventies. He'd aspired to be rich and famous and live in a Tudor mansion in Berkshire, next to a rock legend. He'd played their music, now it was time to live next door to one in an equally grand home. Grand was part of the chameleon character defect. However, his mental handbrake, which was on most of the time, denied him of that outcome. Besides, his somewhat predatory taste for grandeur, lots of beer, and young drunk disco babes usually kept him from getting a good night's sleep and it was the latter which often resulted in a doctor's visit with what was then mildly termed an STD. Any putative deposit for mansion purchase always ended up being spent on high fi equipment, large shortwave radios, and a gently used classic Mercedes coupe. Steve's short-lived attendance at a community college in Watford, Hertfordshire, had at least taught him how to cook gave him a basic working knowledge of economics and a foundation in psychology. This enabled him to hand out gratuitous financial advice while cooking lavishly on his agar cooker and at the same time make sweepingly inaccurate assessments of dinner guests' mental condition, all the while swigging vast amounts of red wine, purportedly an ingredient in whatever dish was being prepared. But that was long ago, What had started as a delirious and exciting dream of travel and change was now about to end up as a suicide for one and yet another AA meeting for the other. Back in suburban Cape Town, John Moody lacked one last procedural detail, the keys to the car. Like many a drunk, he searched pockets at random, again and again patting his coat, his pants and his rear back pockets. This was the same pattern of behavior as he'd done in the liquor store, to find his wallet containing maxed out credit cards or unsorted bunches of South African rand notes. He moved a swollen foot to one side and hearing a clinking sound located his dropped keys. John lacked the flexibility to bend towards the keys, instead attempted to get out of the car so that he could reach to the keys on the floor. Taking another draw from his bottle, He leant back into the car seat as though the next manoeuvre was tantamount to a cross-town run. Now, as any practising drunk would know, taking a breath and swooping down to the keys in one arc-shaped movement would provide him with his keys and also not necessitate him getting out of the car. As any sane, sober individual would predict, his forehead would smash against the steering wheel, which John did with severity. John had served for many years in the Navy, so had accumulated a vast lexicon of swear words. These he now used liberally and vocally as the keys dropped back to the floor. Time for Plan B. Plan B was what the second social group referred to would have done in the first place, which was to get out of the car, reach for the keys, and then get back into the car seat. Slowly, John initiated Plan B and fell sideways onto the oil-stained garage floor. The sound of cracking glass caused a wave of anxiety within him as he realized that what remained of his fifth of wild turkey was now seeping through his dirty coat pocket and trickling under his vehicle. John's last day was not going well. Chapter Two, 1976. It was a balmy English summer's day at the small local commercial radio station just outside London. Steve had been working there since before the station opened that year, first as a commercial producer and after a few days of the station going on air, a weekend DJ. Show over for the day time to relax in the small orchard at the rear of the studio block with a can of Long Life beer, one which would become many as the weekend progressed. In its early days, Radio 210 Thames Valley, as it was called, was based in a disused fire station just outside Reading in Berkshire. It was a perfect setting. There was an old Victorian house joining the building which used to house the fire trucks and all the equipment and the crew. This is where the studio used to be situated, where the DJ's playpen was and where the news operation was based. It had a floor-to-ceiling window and an upper level where there were more work areas, management offices and a boardroom. The open DJ playpen area housed the on-duty DJs, somewhat pompously called presenters, and the record library which never seemed to contain the record one wanted since the usual suspects always had it in their possession, usually their old car. There was also a reception area and a small kitchen. This part of the building was furnished with a random mix of furniture and electrical fittings obtained through trade or contra, a process whereby advertising time was exchanged for goods and services. No cash needed to change hands. Now, Steve had this DJ thing down since he'd been doing it since he was 18 in clubs and discotheques in London and elsewhere. It wasn't that difficult, choosing good dance music and operating the sound deck and the lighting effects. The challenge now, in radio, was walking the transition from banal disc spinner to being an eloquent radio presenter. Steve's good schooling at Cambridge and middle-class upbringing provided a basis for eloquence. But what was needed now was a mix of journalistic and social skills, Steve already had more than adequate technical skills for a small radio station, operating the broadcast control panel was easy, and he had old-school tape editing down pat. Having produced close to 1,000 radio commercials of the local garden variety of voice over music track, Steve was developing reasonably good production skills. The best part was making short jingles and promos for the station and its presenter DJs, since he wasn't beholden to some local car dealer or window retailer for its content. In those days these were loaded into a small transparent plastic box resembling an 8-track cartridge and manually placed into a player, from where the commercial was played, into live programming. However, Steve hated the business meetings with the radio sales reps and their prospective clientele. The rep would write and script almost anything legal to secure the airtime contract. Steve would sit through these meetings attempting to look thoroughly engaged and at the same time be mentally producing his own alternative script for the spot, which could go with something like this. Sam's Auto's spec script, narrator voiceover. Never ever visit Sam's autos. Just drive on past. Sound effect of vehicle rapidly accelerating. Voiceover. You see, Sam has appalling taste in clothes, beats his wife who's drunk most nights, and is having an on-off affair with his single mom bookkeeper. Sound effects, smashing glasses and a woman yelling, Get the fuck out of here! VoiceOver. But there's one thing Sam can do well. He knows a bad used car when he sees one and he knows how to make you buy it voiceover end announcement Sam's of Caversham. turning clunkers into cash for Sam music ends. Steve had other unfavorites too bland too raucous and where the business owner was merely having an ego trip or convincing the town that his business was far more successful than it really was Often, the latter business was short-lived and then went broke, leaving the radio station's accounts department with the unpaid bill. Steve's favourite advertising client was the one where he had free rein on content and script. Humour in advertising always went down well as opposed to earnest, convincing sell with multiple repeats of six-digit Reading telephone numbers. Steve liked a neat little 30 or 60-second story with a beginning, middle and short payoff slogan at the end. He told the sales department that a radio spot only increased store traffic and that it was up to the sales manager or business owner to convert the interest into sales. In those days, if someone wanted a new cooker, they got down the three-inch-thick phone book with its yellow pages at the back. If your radio ad was doing its job, your classified ad might stand out more. Steve had to accept that most local ads were commission generating garbage, and more often than not made the listener tune away to a station which was more cool. The radio station in Reading had its own version of cool. It was quirky cool, and new. Quirky Cool was perhaps a new media segment, but was true nonetheless. Formed in the first part of the 70s, it was first known as Radio Kennet, after a small picturesque tributary in the Thames Valley. It was a hard business proposal to fund, local commercial radio was new, and there was uncertainty as to whether its business model was sustainable in small local markets. The station's application was written by a former BBC journalist and instant aristocrat called Neil. Neil was a chain-smoking, Scotch-whiskey-swigging Old Etonian, that's someone who attended England's centuries-old training school for aristocrats, MPs, and captains of publicly quoted companies. He had a laser-like focus and incredible ability for spotting talent. Now, the talent fell into two categories, broadcast talent and available debutante late-teen female talent. We'll concern ourselves with the first category. Although Neil arrived at the studios late most days with a hangover, what he lacked in punctuality he made up for with time served. Most evenings he'd stay until at least the local pub was opening to grab that last quick one before autopiloting his unkempt rover car home. Most lunchtime started at around noon, again when the pub was just opening for lunch service, and last until half past two, when it closed by law in those days. Here Neil held court with fawning radio presenters and megafawning record pluggers. They're a sales breed unto themselves. Half of the latter were darn good at their jobs, the other half just didn't like Neil. The last statement is somewhat unfair because they just didn't understand Neil. He had a difficult remit, which was to provide an easy listening and speech format while at the same time not make it sound like a stiff BBC local station. Neil liked and knew his music. He didn't mind juxtaposing Dolly Parton with ABBA, but also suspiciously kept a mediocre song and artist at the top of his rather suspect Radio 210 chart for weeks on end. We suspected that the position of a record within the chart was directly related to the amount of pints of beer purchased for him at lunchtime, but we were never quite sure. One thing is for sure, and that was that Neil made record companies and their freewheeling reps work hard for him. Duties included, but were not limited to attending the station's many and varied remote broadcasts and providing contracted talent to appear for free in lieu of outrageous star promotion. Frequently, Neil and his record reps would pull off stunts, such as getting A-listers to be driven straight from London's Heathrow Airport to the studios and then be dragged directly live to air tired jet-lagged and sometimes hungover but who cares this was the 70s steve's first and still most cherished unexpected a list of visit occurred on his very first radio show partridge family member and teen swoon at the time david cassidy arrived directly from heathrow airport he wore a long and sumptuous fur coat and despite a transatlantic flight had perfect hair. I suspect that he was also wearing some eye makeup, but then David Bowie did, so I guess that was okay. David Cassidy sank so far down into his studio guest seat that his mic had to be adjusted accordingly. Actually, I didn't get first go at David, since technically my show wasn't on air yet, Studio One was, so I had to wait a short while. Moving a guest from one studio to the other was common practice in those early days so we could milk the guest's presence for all it was worth. And even when they'd finished, we would cajole them into the recording of some short vocal stings such as Hi, this is David Cassidy and you're listening to 97FM Radio 210 and so forth. A promotional tour was hard work. Neil often insisted that they play for the station's own cricket team, Americans or not. An appearance at our local pub, the Traveller's Friend in Calcutta, was mandatory. Here the celebrity would get to meet the locals and, as compensation, would hand out autographed photos. These are the locals who are old enough to enter any pub. Anyone younger, and there were many of them mostly pubescent schoolgirls, would simply hang around outside the studio premises hoping for a glimpse of some action. The only real action that resulted was to sit in the radiant presence of the other members of the broadcasting staff, usually late on a Friday or a Saturday when the weekend crew was in, preparing their shows and opening mail. 70s heartthrob Gary Glitter came to 210 once, And I'll always remember that when the screaming girls outside saw him descend Neil's office stairs, his manager yelled after him, Pull your fat stomach in! Gary Glitter, a.k.a. Paul Gad, later went on to serve time at Her Majesty's pleasure. In other words, he went to jail. For actually pleasuring himself with such young and underage fans, but thankfully not on our premises, that we were aware of. And on that delicate subject, a quick mention of Scotland Yard's recent concerted attempt to bring such 70s pop stars and celebrities to book. For what these folks thought was permissible sexual behaviour in the 1970s had been deemed in the 2010s by Scotland Yard's far-reaching Operation U Tree as not acceptable whatsoever many of the stars still able to walk if not already dead through drug abuse and alcohol use now found themselves imprisoned awaiting trial or dreading the next knock on the door by britain's trusted and highly respected police force now back to the 70s at radio 210 there was the news team small in number and dedicated to crafting local village water pump news. They'd assemble and write the local news stories, rewrite stuff from the local paper and dash out with a tape recorder for interviews. Scripts were hand-typed onto the back of recycled press releases. The newsroom was actually the station's reason to be. The more times we announced the names of local towns, the more the listeners liked us and so the ratings went up. These were solid statistics. Sometimes this directive drove the news to ridiculous lengths. Steve's own on-air duties often overlapped with news and talk. He waited for the day when he'd be handed a news script headed, shopping cart overturns in Broad Street, Reading. Better still, no one hurt in shopping cart incident in Basingstoke. Our skilled, energetic head of news was a former BBC man called David Addis a gentleman and port connoisseur and wine collector. He still has four proper wine cellars containing exotic vintages. David didn't even need to remember anyone's name, because he called everyone mate. David's skill was his superb ability at working within an almost zero budget. It was as if he was the early adopter of recycling, whatever that was. Everything was repurposed, tape, cassettes, paper, interns. David had extremely high energy, didn't buy into the lazy DJ and beer ethos, and lived in a stunning mansion nearby. Steve sometimes straddled duties between his radio DJ thing and what seemed more worthy – news and talk, and working under David, which was a total pleasure for Steve, That is. But for now, the quick cash and perks were in the DJ and beer thing. Do a radio show during the day or early evening, get known, then go out with a box of records, a stack of free t-shirts, and do a live appearance or DJ set at one of the many discotheques, pubs and clubs locally. It paid well, and it was cash, and there was beer. Plenty of beer. Weekends at the radio station had a totally different feel to them compared to the humdrum, Monday to Friday programme schedule and atmosphere. It was at the weekends when the small radio station seemed to come to life. It could often turn crazy and super fun. Many of us in our early twenties went on to top-level shows at the BBC in London, adding some top TV pop shows and general fame and fortune and untold riches. Some of us moved sideways to other similar stations, but Steve didn't go to London or a similar station. He got a phone call instead. Four years after Radio 210 started, Steve received this phone call from Capital Radio in London. It wasn't an unsolicited invitation to join the famous radio station, London's first commercial pop station, rather to meet its programme director and founding style guru, Michael Buckt. Michael was what ambition dreams were made of. He was high energy, direct, and worked a very long day. He was also one of the first superstar TV and radio cooks, using the nom de Mike Michael Barry. This was because his actual last name was only correctly pronounced by those who actually knew him. He'd later cook for me in Southern Africa some months later. Now here's where it gets interesting. Chapter Three. The South African Connection. For some months, There'd been a rumour among industry insiders that a very small consortium based in Cape Town had put together a business plan of sorts to form a music radio station aimed at South Africa. This was to be positioned in direct opposition to the Republic's own political mouthpiece, the SABC, the South African Broadcasting Corporation. Maybe consortium is too formal a description for this entity. Merry band of 2am entrepreneurs or brave magical thinkers would be more appropriate. For down in the trendiest nightclubs and discos of Cape Town, one of the world's most cosmopolitan cities was a bunch of hard-drinking, music-loving, liberal-minded renegades who collectively were known as piggies discotheques. Now Piggy's was an elite squad of DJs, and their minders, and their mentors. They installed and operated discotheques in smart international hotels throughout the province. International hotels were able to skirt around the oppressive South African regime's rigid apartheid laws, which banned black citizens from mixing and dancing and even marrying whites. Piggy's discos had an air of radical liberal cool about them, and collectively they hated apartheid. They were not alone in this view. Most evenings, when the bars and dancing were shutting down, the DJs would sit around with a final scotch or two for the evening and talk wildly, drunkenly, but enthusiastically about their dream of doing all this, but on the radio. At the same time, the staunchly white propaganda machine of the S.A.B.C. had a stranglehold on and a monopoly of all radio. They answered only to the Pretoria government, who handed down their orders. Piggy's version of music radio was going to be different, radical, musically brilliant, world-changing and be totally cool. Above all, the proposed news bulletins would be unbiased, aware and uncensored, it's that last part which would have the South African government in Pretoria and its lapdog, the SABC, thrown into full panic mode and Red Alert Level 1. And all of that did happen, fast, dangerously, excitingly, and terrifyingly fast. Documents only recently unsealed and available to any South African journalist paint the true picture of the government's paranoia and fear of this little upstart radio station, situated outside their immediate reach. Their ivory towers and leisurely life of colonial times long since gone was about to be threatened. And that threat of change was very present. In Episode 2 Two of the founder DJs and their families board a jet at London's Heathrow Airport and the first bad omen, an engine failure over Rome. But it gets worse. Until next time, on Radio Mad, this is Steve Crozio with the old Radio Maxim. Stay tuned.